Welcome to Densely Speaking, conversations about cities, economics, and law. I'm one of your hosts, Greg Schill, a law professor at the University of Iowa. Today, we have the third in a series of special episodes from a recent symposium on the future of law and transportation, hosted by the Iowa Law Review. What you'll hear is a panel called Mobility, Segregation, and Polarization, featuring three professors. They each speak for about 12 minutes and then take Q&A. These professors are Clayton Nall, a political science professor at UC Santa Barbara, Deborah Archer, a law professor at NYU, and Daniel Rodriguez, a law professor at Northwestern. This panel is moderated by David Prithurch, a professor of geography at Miami University. We will round out our inaugural season of the podcast with a few more of these specials and then return to our regular interview format in a new season. We hope you enjoy the show. So thanks so much for having me to this conference, Greg. I have really enjoyed all the speakers. I hope that some of what I present today will tie in with some of the work that was presented previously, especially Beth Osborne's recent talk. So I'll be sharing some results from my book project, The Road to Inequality, possibly offering a few lessons for the idea of pursuing a Green New Deal for transportation which I think we've all learned is very likely to be taking place in local and state governments and not in the U.S. Senate now that we know the results of Tuesday's election. You all are probably familiar with maps like this, which show the presidential election returns. I imagine we'll see a pretty similar map this time around, perhaps with a bit more blue than the Atlanta suburbs. This map on the bottom is called the Cartogram, and I like showing these maps because I think they nicely illustrate the real dynamics of bipartisan politics in presidential elections between these high population, high density islands of cities surrounded by generally much more Republican suburbs and rural areas. So there are these islands of blue in a sea of red. Over time, that pattern, which has been talked about a lot now in political science, has grown substantially over time. Going back to 1932, We've seen about a 20-point increase in the gap between central counties and their outlying ring counties in terms of the urban-suburban gap in the Democratic presidential vote. That has grown most substantially in the South, but it's also grown pretty substantially in the non-South over this period. Recent elections have just continued that trend. My book offers some explanations for why that is, suggesting that and showing that the Federal Highway Program had a role to play in that secular trend towards urban-suburban polarization. In the first few chapters of the book, I lay out how highways facilitate partisan geographic sorting and how they contributed to this polarized metropolitan geography over time. Today, though, I'm going to be sharing some of the results from the second half of my book, which examines how transportation policy, perhaps as a result of this polarized geography, has become a more partisan issue in the public and even and in state legislators in Congress. I'll then talk about a few policy implications as we go forward. So chapter four of my book talks about how transportation has become a much more partisan issue, but it's become partisan in a specific way that has some implications for how we might think about attacking transportation reforms. For this chapter, I went through 
about 90 different historical surveys in the Roper Center archives. This is an archive of historical polls going back to the 1930s. And I also conducted two original surveys trying to nail down what people mean when they say they support highways or support transit. What exactly are they thinking when they say they support those policies? Anytime you ask people questions about something like transportation policy, the risk is that you're kind of asking them about something that they don't really understand or necessarily think that much about. One of the classic examples in major work in poli-sci by John Zoller says that people have these top-of-the-head considerations. You can ask them questions about things like the MX missile, and they'll give whatever answer they think seems right at the time, but might just be completely drawn at random from some set of considerations. What I think makes transportation different is that People do have a lot of direct experience with transportation, and while they may not understand what is happening in the federal or state or local policy realm, they do have a lot of direct experience to help them form their opinions. You might think about this as a sort of low information rationality. So what do I find in my study? I find that up to this point, a lot of the discussion about transportation and other policies is discussed in terms of some kind of suburban or place-based interest. But one of the things I find is that You know, despite this and despite the tendency for national transportation policymaking to be a relatively bipartisan thing, there has been some partisan sorting on these issues over time as Democrats and Republicans have sorted it into different places. The sort of issue sorting that we've seen is very similar to what's appeared in other policies like welfare, healthcare, gay rights, where people have increasingly adopted a correct partisan position on these transportation issues. In the case of Democrats, it means siding with transit. In the case of Republicans, it means going against transit. But there's an urban, urban sorting that's occurring that it has coincided with, as I'll show, an asymmetrical sorting where there's plummeting Republican support for certain progressive transportation goals that unfortunately is not matched as much by higher support among Democrats. Here are some results from this dig through the Roper Center surveys. I looked at two types of questions, which are really the only kinds of questions asked about transportation over the last 50 or 60 years on these surveys. One, do you support highway or road spending? And that was phrased different ways in different surveys. The other is, do you support mass transit or mass transportation spending? Usually just framed in terms of, you know, do you support spending on these items or not? So let's start by looking at highway spending. To me, one of the big surprises here is that Democrats, independents, and Republicans are all pretty supportive of highway spending. And that support has actually increased over time in the Roper Center archives and surveys that I was able to collect. And this is pretty much borne out in the general social survey as well. So at this point, even though I think perhaps in the sort of war on cars crowd, there's a sort of stereotype that Republicans love highways and Democrats don't love them as much, Democrats still like highways pretty well. Where we've seen the big partisan gap emerge is around support for transit. And here, Democratic support has actually been roughly constant over the last 40 or 50 years. Although we've seen a bigger drop among Republicans, to the point where barely more than a quarter of Republicans express some kind of support for transit funding. And so far, so good. You know, these very general questions about transit or highway spending only tell us a bit about some kind of vague category of spending. I wanted to get around this by asking my own survey questions. So I conducted two original online surveys in 2013 and 2015. 
which allowed me to do a bunch of other th things that I couldn't do with the historical data, one of which was to be able to collect data on things like zip code, population density, ask people directly about their partisanship, collect a lot of other demographic information about them as well, and conducted these surveys in 2013 and 2015. So here's a set of the questions that I asked about. I asked about transportation vouchers for the poor. This is a policy that is actually endorsed by a libertarian opponent of transit spending, Wendell Cox. And I thought I would just throw this on the survey to test it. Turns out that Republicans don't like this idea at all by about a 32-point margin relative to Democrats. I asked them about the idea of diverting 20% of the gas tax money to transit. This is effectively a summary of the status quo in transportation policy at the federal level. By a 22-point margin, Democrats support that issue. Democrats are, were much more supportive of a high-speed rail, which had become a contentious partisan issue with governors opposing Obama's plans. The urban bus to the suburbs, surprisingly, a majority of Republicans support that, but again, a 16-point partisan gap. Down at the bottom of this list, though, we see that while there are these partisan gaps, the more you talk about transit as a kind of welfare policy or welfare issue, Democrats and Republicans agree on some policies that I think transportation reformers would consider to be fairly bad. In fact, Democrats are about as supportive or more supportive of adding more suburban highway lanes, of adding more city highway lanes as Republicans are, and are about as supportive of the idea of giving drivers a tax break to pay for their commutes to work. So, you know, there are these pocketbook issues that come to people's minds, perhaps because they don't think through all the details of the policy, where they are reflexively supportive of some pretty bad policies. All right, so that raises the question, how might we induce people to think about transportation policy trade-offs? So I use this technique, sometimes called the method of paired comparisons, where you give people a pair of policy options and ask them to pick the more preferred option. So an example, I had about 25 items on the list. What should be a more important priority in the next federal transportation bill? Aid for buses to low-income housing projects or repairing rural roads? The quantity of interest here is the proportion of the time that those policies get picked against some random option. Here are the results of that. I've broken these into a few different categories, bus, highway spending, rail spending. And then at the end, I had a series of questions about repairs. So this is broken out by party. On the vertical axis is the proportion that each of these was chosen against a randomly drawn alternative. I think for me, the biggest finding here, which really backs up Beth Osborne's strategy at T4A, is that both parties are very supportive of kind of repair-based approach to transportation, maybe what they think they are supporting when they say they support highways or transit. Both parties provide pretty tepid support for a lot of other transportation policy options, with Democrats somewhat more supportive of transit than Republicans. But those repair items really stand out, which may be a glimmer of hope in thinking about how to build a transportation strategy. And so Republicans and Democrats disagree sometimes substantially over these policies, but their disagreement is pretty asymmetrical, particularly with respect to how do we take on car-based infrastructure and not just add on the kind of status quo plus a bunch of new transit approach to transportation policy. So where does this matter? And as Beth mentioned, there is a kind of bipartisan consensus in Congress that has been remarkably robust to party change and to you know, changes in the leadership in both houses, or even under unified Republican control, transit in its current state has been relatively safe. 
Where we're likely to see movement is really in, in where this partisan polarization and geographic polarization is likely to matter is down at the local level in MPOs and things like partisan votes for transit referenda. So I'm about out of time, but I want to just share a couple analyses from my book, one of which looked at the vote for the Detroit RTA measure in 2016 and the BART measure in 2016. What I find is that the two-party presidential vote matters hugely, much more than various measures of material self-interest in determining how people voted on those referenda. So something to keep in mind is a strategy is being built. All right, so to wrap up, what are some of the implications if we're going to try pursuing a kind of Green New Deal through local or state action? Federal transportation policy, the status quo is pretty robust, maybe hard to crack. We have to think about how partisan polarization on these issues is asymmetric. The federal transportation policy leaves a lot of the implementation of policies to the mercy of local politics, where the partisan geography that I just described potentially matters a lot. And so where you have Democrats, there may be an option to, to actually pursue alternatives to road building and pursue transit. And that seems to be where there's the most hope to pursue a Green New Deal around transportation. And with that, I'll stop and take your questions. All right, we've got time for questions, and I will start actually with one from an attendee, Michael Loon, who maybe you can see that there, Clayton, but he asks if the map in 2020, which is a little more muddied compared to 2016, might change the analysis. He talks specifically I, about the democratic gains in the suburbs and so yeah, forth. Yeah, I haven't actually looked at the numbers. I think that we have a good sense that the Democrats have maybe moved some suburbs from light red to light blue, especially in places like Atlanta. Now, the question is, you know, what is that going to mean for their support for these policies? What I find in my polling is that Democrats, regardless of where they live, are pretty supportive of transit funding. And so there isn't a kind of place-based interest among Democrats. They adopt the correct party position on transit. And that's, I think, a pretty good thing that in places like the Sun Belt, we might actually see, if the Democrats are gaining an edge there, we might see some shift to more responsible policy. So it looks like there's a question from Jeff Wood about MPOs, the structure towards the suburbs. So a restructure of the MPOs, would that help? Jeff interviewed me about my book about a year and a half ago, and this came up in our conversation. Yes, I do think that MPO restructuring would probably help. Right now, central cities and a lot of MPOs are given an underweight in their vote in the MPOs with outlying suburbs and municipalities being given more influence. Would reweighting them or restructuring them to give some major cities more power make a difference? I think it would. Maybe not in every metropolitan area, however. So in, in areas where the suburbs have a lot of the population, that might be counterproductive in some cases. I think it would have to be determined on a case-by-case basis. I guess I'm going to take a prerogative to ask a question myself. One of the crossover things with the recent Rediscover the City is there's a lot of real estate in streets. And developers seem to have a growing interest in things like livability and some of those things that may cross over party lines, that there's strong Republican interests in downtown real estate. Do you see that changing at all? As we see more infill and things like that, that the support for maybe not so much for highways, but other forms of transit. If, for example, you don't need to have parking if you're near a transit station, does that change the calculus? I'm sure for a certain stratum of the developer class in the Republican Party, there's interest in that. Thinking more broadly about, say, the Republican electorate, just how many kind of libertarians are there out there who support loosening up land use restrictions to allow more development, including of high-density apartments and other things? 
there really aren't that many people out there who would qualify as right libertarians on these housing development issues. They're extremely rare in the electorate. So Republicans are pretty unified in their support for exclusionary zoning, restrictive R1 zoning, and aren't all that supportive of measures to allow more high-density development. Just looking at the survey data, that is. All right, wonderful. There's some other great questions that maybe you can answer in the chat, but we're at 20 minutes now, I believe. So we'll turn it over to the next talk, which looks like it's Deborah Archer. So thank you, Clayton. Thank you. And thank you for including me. I am not a person who focuses on transportation policy, and instead my focus is on civil rights and racial justice. And unfortunately, we're not usually a part of these conversations, or at least I'm not usually a part of these conversations. So it's been wonderful to hear this discussion. A common framework that we often use for understanding how racism works in America is to focus on the way that white supremacy and structural racism have led to the exclusion of Black people from economic, social, and the political gains that have been experienced by other groups. Our systems of racial exclusion, which have really outlived both chattel slavery and legally countenanced Jim Crow, reach beyond physical spaces to create a web of discrimination and exploitation and psychological and economic barriers that really do persist to this day. However, historian Manning Marable viewed this social, economic, and political inequality through a different framework. He believed that the inequality was the result of perfect inclusion rather than any type of exclusion because America's systems are structured deliberately and specifically to maximize Black oppression. Specifically, Marable posited that the most striking fact about American history and politics is the brutal and systemic underdevelopment of Black people. And according to this theory, Black people have never been equal partners in the American social contract because our systems exist not to develop, but to underdevelop Black people. And to affect this underdevelopment, he argues that racism is embedded into the core of power, the economy, culture, and society. And the result is that Black people have been intentionally sacrificed to feed America's growth and expansion. And I believe that this theory helps to explain a lot and that among the systems that feed underdevelopment of Black people in Black communities, a key one is transportation policy and the resulting impact that these policies have on housing, access to opportunity, economic investment, and health. From the building and funding of highways to roads to bridges, sidewalks, and public transportation, transportation policy and our nation's transportation infrastructure was built at the expense of Black communities and contributed to the underdevelopment of Black America, and it still does today. In building our nation's transportation infrastructure, government and planners have wielded social, economic, and political power against Black people historically and today. Transportation planners fail to holistically consider the impact of public works programs on education, housing, economic development, and health in Black communities. And one result is a man-made physical landscape and then transportation policies that get layered over that landscape that make many Black communities inhospitable for success and economic opportunity. The late Congressman 
John Lewis once wrote that the legacy of Jim Crow transportation is still really with us. Even today, some of our transportation policies and practices destroy stable neighborhoods, isolate and segregate our citizens in deteriorating neighborhoods, and fail to provide access to jobs and economic growth centers. And really, this is the essence of underdevelopment. There are many ways and examples of the ways that transportation policy detrimentally impacts Black communities and the health and well-being of Black people. But in the time that I have, I'm going to pick up on the conversation that was started during our great keynote we heard before the lunch break, and I think things that are probably touched on in the first half of Clayton's book. And that's the ways that the highway development following the 1956 passage of the Interstate Highway Act contributed to the creation and perpetuation of racially and economically segregated cities that we see around the country today, and then hopefully discuss one piece of the complicated puzzle of how we can forward from here. So the passage of the Interstate Highway Act propelled both highway construction and also the destruction of Black communities. Federal and state officials purposefully targeted Black communities to make way for massive highway projects. And in states around the country, highways disproportionately displace Black households and really, I think, cut the heart and soul out of thriving Black communities as homes, churches, schools, and businesses were destroyed. And in some cases, entirely leveled Black communities. The highway system was also a tool of a segregationist agenda and really erected a post-Jim Crow wall that separated white and Black communities, protecting white people from Black migration and further entrenching racial segregation and walling off economic opportunity. And this was often accomplished at the request of white residents who feared integration now that the traditional tools that they had used were falling down at the hands of the courts. They were assisted by existing racial segregation patterns and racial zoning laws that were rampant, particularly in the South. So highway builders were able to build highways on previously formal or informal boundary lines between white and Black neighborhoods and confine Black residents and skirt the constitutional prohibitions on racial zoning. And sometimes the highway just destroyed Black communities by dividing them up and really breaking apart the sense of community there. There are a few examples from around the country. In St. Paul, Minnesota, the construction of I-94 displaced about one-seventh of the city's Black residents. And at the time, one observer noted that very few Black people lived in Minnesota, but the road builders were really able to find each and every one of them. Similarly, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a Black community known as the Hill District was devastated in order to build Interstate 579. And when I-579 opened up to traffic, it had effectively cut off the Hill District from Pittsburgh's thriving downtown area and displaced thousands of Black residents. The population of the Hill District dropped from about 54,000 residents in 1950 to about 9,500 residents in 2013. More than 400 businesses were also lost. And when you displace that many people and community institutions and businesses, you essentially damn that community. So it's really not surprising that today 
about 40% of the Hills District's residents live below the poverty line. In Orlando, Florida, and at the insistence of white residents, I-4 was built to provide a barrier that separated Black residents on the west side of town from the white residents in the central business district that was on the east side of town. In Nashville, I-40 was built right through the main Black business district, which had been home to 128 Black-owned businesses, in addition to destroying most of those businesses. Six Black churches were destroyed and 50 local streets were dead-ended. I-40 also separated children from their playgrounds and schools, parishioners from their churches, and patients from the hospitals. Fisk University, Meharry Medical College, and Tennessee State University, which are three historically Black colleges and universities, were walled off from each other and from the communities that the school served. And the highway also physically constrained the future growth of those three institutions. And finally, in Florida, Interstate 95 tore through the center of Overtown, which was a large and vibrant Black community considered to be the center of economic and cultural life for Black people living in Miami. And a single massive interchange took up 40 square blocks, devoured completely the Black business district, and took the homes of about 10,000 people. And by the late 1960s, Overtown was really dominated by the highway, and there was no evidence of why it was once called the Harlem of the South. And these examples are just the tip of the iceberg. It seems that virtually every state has a story about the highway destroying a Black community. And there's lots of information confirming that the destruction was intentional, and it has had a lasting impact. So while the highways connected white people living in suburbia with economic opportunities in the city, Black residents were excluded from white neighborhoods. And when the highways destroyed their homes, they were forced to find new housing in communities that were already intensely segregated by race and class. It further entrenched racial segregation and really further taxed inadequate housing, employment opportunities, and public services in those communities. And of course, highways are not the only ways in which transportation policy and infrastructure has harmed Black communities. Although transportation racism is no longer marked by these explicit racial divisions and motivations, the country's transportation system is still operated to provide unequal access along race and class lines, limiting access to jobs, education, and economic opportunity, and forcing communities of color to bear a disproportionate share of environmental harms. For example, while we see heavy investments in highways and suburban commuter rail systems, Black communities are underserved by chronically underfunded public transportation systems. And diving deeper into our public transportation system, buses, which are disproportionately used by Black commuters, are the most underfunded and neglected. Even an examination of the routes that residents of low-income communities of color take to their buses and trains reveals communities that are lacking sidewalks and crosswalks. So how do we move forward to protect and revitalize Black and marginalized communities? I'm going to try to do it in the one minute that I have remaining. I think we need to engage in a true systemic analysis and racial equity considerations really have to be central from the beginning of the process to the end of the process. Historically, urban planners and government officials have not demonstrated sensitivity to these concerns and don't have a great track record of integrating concepts of racial justice into their work. And as other scholars have noted, where transportation policy has been deployed to limit opportunity and development of Black people and Black communities, 
planning professionals have provided the rationale, supportive data and information, and plans. And transportation policy to frequently replicates and reflects existing social, economic, and political power. So we absolutely have to transform this relationship. Just recognizing the link between transportation policy and the underdevelopment of Black communities is not enough. We need to break that link. And of course, that needs to include the need for transportation policy to rethink priorities and goals and the way we go about the decision-making process. But I also think that we need to rethink how we use civil rights laws so that they can affect fundamental change and attack systemic and structural racial inequality. Despite the wide-ranging impact that transportation decisions have on civil rights and racial equity concerns, transportation policy has not been widely embraced as a pressing civil rights issue. And part of the problem is that civil rights laws, as currently interpreted, are not well suited to deal with the intersection of areas impacted by transportation policy, nor are they easily used to challenge the lack of opportunity and investment and the accumulation of harms in Black communities over decades compared to the investment and protection of white communities, nor in undoing the decisions that have momentum behind them. So I'm happy to discuss some of this more in the Q&A, but I know that my time is up. All right. Thank you so much. We already have a few questions. And so I know Greg, because he's the host, he should get to ask a question. He asked earlier, you want to go, Greg? And then we have another really good one from Patrick. Sure. Well, thank you so much, Professor Archer. Such an important topic. And you've done such a fantastic job of laying it out. It seems to me that there were a few things that were considered urban renewal, right? At kind of mid-century. And highways were one and housing projects were another. There were probably others, but those were two major ones. We stopped doing one of them. And in fact, it became delegitimized, right, to build housing projects. But the other one is not just going strong, but as we've seen from past presentations, has really deep bipartisan support and seemingly deep social support. And then the way that actually gets administered continues to displace and to pollute Black communities. I wondered if you had any thoughts on that divergence there, where we still have one legacy and not the other. In fact, it's maybe even getting worse. Yeah, I think it's interesting that there may be bipartisan support for urban renewal, but I wonder if there is cross-racial support for urban renewal. And certainly there was a point in history where urban renewal became known in Black communities as Negro removal as opposed to urban renewal. I think we have a challenge that we often hear these progressive trigger words like urban renewal, like economic investment, and then we are blinded by visions of opportunity that they might create without really thinking about the harm that comes to those communities in which you are about to engage in this urban renewal or economic investment, how that is not going to serve them in the long run. We look short term and may say over the next five years, it's going to do wonderful things to this community. It's going to bring in businesses and bring in more economic diversity into the community. But when you look farther out, you'll see that those investments often displace residents who have been investing and struggling in that community for decades. And so I think we do have to take a step back and look at what urban renewal actually means on the ground for the people who have been living in those communities so that we don't create a situation where they're not able to continue to live in that community and to benefit from the economic investment and renewal. All right. And we had a question from Patrick Kennedy, which I'll just kind of 
paraphrase, which is that there's now a movement towards highway removal, mm -hmm. uh, including some of these kind of underutilized things that did so much damage. His question is, is if you have redevelopment into that available land, how is it inclusive so that it just doesn't reinforce some of the processes that you're talking about? Yeah, that's happening around the country. And it's going on in Syracuse, New York, for example, that we have these highways, as Beth talked about at lunch, that are a lot of them are no longer useful and we have to decide what to do with those highways. Do we rebuild them and repair them? Do we replace them? And what do we replace them with? And as we're going through those considerations, I think it's important that racial justice and civil rights concerns are at the center of that conversation from beginning to end. Even if you're going to remove the highways, which I think is what most of those impacted communities are fighting for, removing the highway still comes with the potential to further harm and damage the communities that have been hosting that highway for decades. You have to think about the displacement, the temporary and permanent displacement that comes through the construction. What happens to children who go to school in and around that highway? The increase in pollution that's going to happen as a result of the construction. And one thing that is going on is rezoning in areas around highway redevelopment projects. And again, it depends on how you look at what community equity means and how you look at what inclusion means and what the goal is. And so certainly if you have communities around a highway that are predominantly Black and Latinx and really are an example of concentrated racialized poverty, a goal may be to integrate that community economically, to bring in folks of other races, to bring in a broader array of economic diversity in the community. And that's a good thing in the short term. But what we see in a bit of the longer term, again, you can't stop that. The point at which that just progresses and progresses and the folks living around the highway who were there originally are displaced. And so I think some of the zoning work is tricky because the zoning laws are doing what we've traditionally viewed as positive in terms of integrating housing, but really have some maybe unexpected consequences. It looks like we have one more minute for questions, and we have one from Dr. Jefferson Jones. So, Yes. So I want to follow up on this idea of highway removal. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to have highway removal, which I would say the removal of the Black neighborhoods in particular for the building of highways falls under the rubric of what Bernadette Atuhini calls a dignity taking, right? And so then should there be dignity restoration that would be in this area of, and remember I said it, everything comes back to property, should there be property rights restoration? So rather than just focusing even on those who were left behind in the community, what about those who were removed from the community or their children and grandchildren? Should we replant basically, right? Replant people, or at least give them the opportunity to be replanted in their historic neighborhoods? I'm glad you asked that question. It's related to some work that I am doing that focuses on the right of return as a framework for reparations and looking at the many ways that Black people had their property taken away from them. My brain is not functioning right now. It's either in Seattle or Portland has started a program that focuses on the right of return and includes people who were displaced by a highway building project there. And it's difficult to return that original property to them but providing them some benefits, giving them access to housing in that community. But certainly in the typical highway rebuilding project, I think someone just pointed out that it is Portland. 
we certainly should be trying to think about not just looking forward to make sure that we're not putting new harms in the community, but using this unique opportunity of this highway redevelopment project to restore and rebuild communities, looking backwards to try to to really make amends for the damage that was done decades ago. All right. Well, thank you so much. And then the next and last talk in this session is from Professor Daniel Rodriguez. Thank you, David. And I want to, as other panelists have said, thank Greg Schill. A special shout out to Haley and her colleagues at the Iowa Law Review. I've been part, as many of us have, many Law Review symposia. And because of the diversity, the sheer number, but also the diversity and breadth of the presentations, I know they'll have their work cut out for them in putting together what I know will be a really interesting and important volume. And I'm happy to take part in that. So my topic is connected to, although not at the center of transportation policy, it's really about mobility. And it grows out of a phenomenon that I'm sure many of you have noticed, if not personally experienced by way of anecdote, especially during the COVID-19 crisis. And that is what I call in the paper, the problem of escape, or to put it more homely, the phenomenon of a number of folks tend to be more affluent who can and will work remotely, leaving their homes for some particular period of time to what I call escape to what they perceive as more amenable surroundings outside of their area, often outside of the state entirely for whatever particular period of time because of their concerns about about COVID infection, maybe also related to their concerns. You think about large urban areas, about racial unrest, and a variety of issues. This is not, the origins are not entirely unique to the COVID crisis, but we've seen quite a burst of activity in that regard. And there's evidence of that. It's not simply by way of anecdote. After a period of time in which many of us were more or less locked in place, although even during that particular period of time, we know that authorities really never, I don't want to even say seldom, never enforced in any draconian way as they would in quarantines laws to prohibit folks from getting in their cars or more rarely on airplanes, on trains and buses and leaving to go and rent a place on VRBO or on Airbnb or if they were especially affluent to access their vacation homes, and they did so in very large numbers over the course of the summer and continuing to the present. Indeed, there's been labels attached to them. Some of the travel sites call them staycationers, or they talk about the phenomenon as flexcations. I just saw a link after I actually turned in my paper draft of the phenomenon that they're calling Zoom towns, where individuals are going in a burst of sort of activity in quasi-rural or quasi-suburban or exurban areas for whatever particular period of time. And so my project is really an effort to see whether the law has anything interesting to say about this phenomenon, law and and public policy, to the extent it persists. And I want to suggest, although guardedly, and I'd love to get your inputs, that the answer is yes, although it's not entirely clear under existing legal doctrine and public policy how we might address this phenomenon. Again, small caveats. This is not a universal or uh, equally distributed phenomenon, needless to say. These are about relatively wealthy individuals, right, again, who can have the option and opportunity to work remote. They tend to be concentrated in empty nesters more often than not, right, who can escape for whatever particular period of time. And so while it's a large phenomenon, it has differential impacts. And indeed, that is one aspect of what I would describe as a problem, is that it is a luxury, in essence, that is limited to those who can hop in the cars, as it were and go to one or another of these Zoom towns. So is it a problem? Well, it really depends on your priors 
and how you think about larger issues with respect to mobility. We don't have legal categories or even economists have a hard time sort of figuring out what category this phenomenon falls into. So it's not about changing residences, although, of course, the staycations may be a prelude to a shift in residency. And there's been much written. You might recall Jerry Seinfeld writing a notorious op-ed defending New York against the charge that everybody was going to leave New York and saying that's not nearly going to happen. So we don't know. What we do know, what the data tells us is that American mobility is declining. Folks are not relocating to a great extent. That's actually a really interesting phenomenon in and of itself. And that has policy impacts and, and influences. A wonderful recent long article in the Yale Law Journal from a couple of years ago from my friend David Schleicher at Yale, who has written about the phenomenon of the decrease in mobility and what it might mean. It's not about college students going and spending some particular period of time in college, although maybe that's a little bit more of an analogy because the law has to deal with issues of residency and what counts as a resident. This is about folks leaving for some particular period of time without particular legal consequences by result of their leaving. So is it a problem? Well, from a liberty perspective, Sarah Braunen earlier today was talking about liberty and federalism. From a liberty and federalism perspective, the answer doctrinally is no, not at all. On the contrary, we have a well-established, well-embedded right to travel in our constitutional jurisprudence, right? That's been around for quite some time. And that includes the mobility to move from one state to the other, whether it's for tourism for a particular period of time to move forever. Justice Stevens described in a case a number of years ago, this as the right to be treated as a welcome visitor rather than as an unfriendly alien when temporarily present in the second state. So it's hard to imagine under any serious legal rubric that the law would rise up and say that you would be prohibited or even limited in any significant way from your ability to escape and go from one area to the other. Indeed, we can push it a bit further and say, from some perspectives, it's not only not a legal problem or something the law could address, it's something we should welcome. Charles Thibault, of course, famously talked about residential sorting and the notion that folks can and should vote with their feet. And that will signal sort of their preference for a mix of resources in various ways. And so given highway, airplane travel, ease of travel, why not celebrate individuals who have made their revealed preferences known by deciding to escape for whatever particular period of time and for whatever reason? Albert Hirschman, right, talks about this as one species of exit voice and loyalty, this being exit for whatever particular period of time. So I want to suggest the answer, though, that's too tempting. And we should say not so fast to the notion that escape is not a problem and indeed should be embraced, or at least we should sort of be ambivalent about it. That in fact, escape along the dimensions that I'm describing may raise some significant problems and issues that we should think about from the vantage point of public policy or maybe even from law. Although the challenges of how best to do that, especially with respect to the latter, are very high. So it's not a coincidence that I use the example of COVID. It's not just because we're experiencing this. From a public health perspective, there are some significant challenges when we see a diaspora, as it were, of folks leaving one community to the other for a particular period of time. To put it one way, they may be seeing their motivation for doing so to escape from the likelihood that they will contract COVID to an area in which they won't, although the consequences or the result may be exactly the opposite. And you'll recall over the course of the summer, the late spring and early summer, a number of efforts, some of which have become now have expired, but may return as we see the COVID second wave or continuation of the first wave, travel restrictions, 
imposed by various states. Probably the most notorious early on was Governor DeSantis in Florida imposing a requirement on folks who deplaned in Florida, many of whom were accessing their vacation homes coming from New York, where COVID was a significant problem, to Florida. And a number of states, indeed the vast majority of states, imposed various restrictions of various sorts, mandatory quarantines. They didn't get this far, but there was certainly some effort to think about health passports, right, as as a condition. Well, this didn't come out of nowhere. This was born of a sense that there's a real problem when we have interstate mobility protected by the right of travel, which means that folks could come from one jurisdiction to the other and increase the number of infections. And we really don't have much equipment in our law or public policy to deal with that to a great extent. And there were and continue to be a number of challenges, litigation, invoking the right to travel, to seek to strike down various regulations imposed, particularly at the state level, to folks coming from one state to the other. So I mostly want to flag this issue, although certainly I do want to, I have in the paper draft and will continue as I think about this and would welcome your comments, to see how the law, the reconciliation of public health rights, the so-called Jacobson issue, right, which is a more than a century old Supreme Court case in which the court said, not that we postpone civil liberties during a time of a pandemic, but that we have to look at public health regulations. In that case, it was a mandatory vaccination through the lens of the exigencies of the state police power. And maybe that also provides an abject lesson for how we ought to think about what I call the problem of escape. But it's not only the public health consequences, there are economic impacts from this diaspora. Their costs are imposed by these staycationers, right, on the communities in which they reside. They ordinarily are not taxed. State tax law does not provide a regime in which individuals can and will bear certain costs. Indeed, that's the economic calculus that a lot of folks of means make, which is I can go to my staycation residence, I can go rent on Airbnb for maybe months at a time without fearing that the state tax authorities are going to claw into me and charge me a lot. Now, that's not a matter of natural law or constitutional right. That's just basically how our tax scheme has developed. So the bottom line is there are economic impacts on the communities in which individuals escape to, but there's also economic impacts on the communities they leave behind. And that may be in some sense even more challenging, right, is what happens given this diaspora to the communities that lose for substantial periods of time, maybe not forever, but for substantial periods of time, the more affluent residents. Now, many of you in listening to this will say, isn't this just a variation on the theme of white flight? And absolutely, just as we noted and continue to note about the economic and social justice consequences of this phenomenon that, you know, for a long time was called white flight. And by the way, it's not coincidental with respect to the problem escape that I'm talking about here. Again, note the point about affluence. It's a simultaneous dilemma, right? It's a dilemma for the communities that are importing these folks, and it's a dilemma for the communities that are losing residents. I've alluded to this throughout the presentation. I'll note as a third issue, significant equity considerations, by which I mean, not to be mysterious about it, is folks with means can exercise transport in order to escape, and those who don't will not. So let me conclude in the last couple of minutes by just noting what we might do about it if you're convinced that this is a public policy problem. A couple of non-starters, right? The right to travel exists to prohibit us from really creating drawbridges that truly stop individuals, even if we think of this as a significant problem, from traveling from state A to state B. Not that public authorities haven't tried to do that. Some of you may remember, again, it seems like ancient history early in the pandemic, 
when the Outer Banks of North Carolina imposed various restrictions that kept people from accessing their second homes. Folks went ballistic. They sued. Those regulations were lifted. But for the most part, we don't have modalities under our constitutional legal system to truly stop folks from escaping. Nor do we really have a language or vocabulary that enables us to interrogate motive to any great degree, to basically sort or separate out folks who leave for what we might regard as the right reasons from those who leave for the wrong reasons. And I'm not presupposing or loading the dice by saying that folks should be objects of scorn for their decision to, on behalf of themselves and their family, seek refuge in areas outside. What I will say is we should think significantly, I would argue, about public policy solutions on two dimensions. One is incentives to encourage people to stay put, if at all, not at any cost. There's a kitchen sink of approaches we might think of. We could think of increasing tolls in terms of interstate movement from one area to the other. We could increase gas taxes because you have to fuel up when you take to the highways to escape from one area to the other. We could think about uses of hotel taxes. Those are usual public policy equipment, but I'd suggest that might be oriented and utilized in order to deal with and confront the problem of escape. And we should also, on the other side, provide incentives by which individuals should, as economists would say, internalize externalities. So maybe, again, going back to my tax discussion, maybe local authorities should have greater latitude to impose taxes and costs on individuals who are truly staycationing in areas for a variety of ways. I'm going to end on this a little provocative note, since voting is on all of our minds these days. There is a really interesting issue about representation from the vantage point of folks who are coming into these communities. It's the other side of the coin. Should they have some agency or some voice in the areas in which they are living in? Should they, as it were, have a vote in their new Zoom towns? So I'd say more about that, but let me stop because I'd really welcome your comments and questions in a project that's obviously in its very early stages. All right. Well, thank you. And, you know, we had a question in the Q&A from Eileen McCarthy about the right to travel, and it's really been established and how clear that is. And I guess that's its own question that you've kind of been talking about. And then the other thing is about some of these escapes where maybe you're intrastate travel, your house is upstate or something. So yeah, how about that right to intrastate travel? So interesting. The short answer to the first question is, for better or worse, this could be a much longer conversation. The right to interstate travel is well established in our constitutional jurisprudence. Indeed, some of the early cases go back to the Dust Bowl era, where states were imposing restrictions on so-called migrants and undesirables. And the Supreme Court stepped in to say, you know, you can't do that. Shapiro versus Thompson is a case that the lawyers in this meeting probably remember from your constitutional law days, the imposition of residency requirements or waiting periods for welfare benefits and so on. So it's hard to unwind that clock with respect to the constitutional right to interstate travel, and it's difficult to find much limits. Intrastate travel is really intriguing. It's not of constitutional origin, federal constitutional origin. It's not sort of right to intrastate travel, as it were. On the other hand, there is not, to the best of my knowledge, an enormous number of practical legal burdens, certainly from a formal vantage point, from moving from Chicago to you know downstate. But there are a lot of practical burdens, right? Municipal residency authorities and this and that. And it's important to note that the ordinary restrictions that are so powerful and profound in the interstate context, and I'm here talking about not only the right to travel, but the so-called dormant commerce clause, simply don't exist in the intrastate context. So there has been a movement, as David suggests, of folks moving from the big urban areas to more rural areas within the state, and not much of a legal vocabulary, as it were, to deal with that phenomenon in any significant way. Do we have any other questions, either from panelists or 
Q&A? I guess I'll ask one. You haven't talked yeah. too much about income taxes. I live in a town in which our budget's highly dependent on income taxes, and there are a lot of cases floating around that would disconnect your responsibility to pay in that place where you used to work, but now you work by Zoom. What happens there? First of all, let me be evasive in this sense. I will defer on the practical questions to colleagues of mine who study state and local tax for a living, and I do not. So I want to be careful in making any broad claims about what authority can exist under state law and federal law with respect to taxes. Now, having evaded, let me nonetheless wade into those waters to say a couple things. Number one is I'm aware of the phenomenon, David, that you're describing, and it's really very interesting. And it could only expect to be even more volatile and controversial as folks continue to work remotely with all that phenomenon. That's a really big issue. Number two is, you know, having looked closely at federal statutory law and also constitutional law, there's nothing that jumps out at me as a blanket sort of constitutional rule against, let's say, the California Franchise Tax Board making a judgment that no longer should residency be the defining term for the purpose of imposing income tax, but instead you should look at something else other than residency. Now you get into issues of where you were in the income and all of that, but let's not just assume the own conclusion, which is the only basis upon which you can reach out and impose income taxes, which is what we're talking about here, sales taxes, all that stuff is a given. But there's two big buckets of potential tax liability that we really think about and I think ought to be thought about in addressing the problem of escape. One is the income tax. The other is the property tax, which again is defined by virtue of property that you own rather than property that you rent. Again, that's not God-given. That's not a matter of federal constitutional law. Maybe, just maybe, if folks are truly accessing these second homes, staycations, Zoom towns, whatever you want to call it, we think about different regimes of property tax law. So as to enable folks to, again, internalize the externalities they're imposing on the local area. Let's face it, there will be, and that's why the Zoom town notion is so interesting, there will be communities that are popping up in which the vast majority of locals, as it were, are really not locals. They're folks who have come from other areas who are staying for a month, a year, three to five years. They're not the ones voting in the community. There'll be enormous tensions between locals and these staycationers. And they have have to to stay tuned for that tension because it's going to be, I I hate to cut you off, but I want to keep us on time. Um, And I'm going to hand it over to Clayton and panel four on transportation land use. So thank you so much to Daniel and everybody else on this panel. That's a wrap for this episode. Thank you to my co-host, Jeff Lynn. Thank you to our producer, Skylar Pals, and to all of you, our listeners. If you haven't already, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find the show. You can subscribe there as well. The views expressed on today's show are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, or any of the other institutions with which the hosts or guests are affiliated. 